Welcome to season two of the Best Boss Ever podcast series, where our accomplished guests share amazing stories about their best bosses, their career paths, how they got to where they are, and what the future looks like from here. And also the what not to do's from their worst bosses. Make these stories all the more interesting because you know it, we've all been there. Thanks for joining us today and stay tuned because the hits just keep on coming. Lydia Murphy Steffens is an expert in the field of television production, programming, distribution, and rights acquisition. From her early days at ABC Sports, where we first met, to Oxygen Media, then Cablevision and the MSG Networks, and finally, as the first president of the Pac-12 Networks, which, by the way, she built from scratch, her stellar career spans 30-plus years of increasingly responsible executive leadership posts. For most of us, that would be plenty, but not for Lydia. Three years ago, she launched her own company, Sports Bubble, an internet-based company that owns and manages the Watch Sports app, a fascinatingly simple way to connect and watch sports regardless of platform, device, channel, or streaming service. You're gonna love what you hear next, I promise. Hey, Lydia, welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast series. So glad to have you join us. Thank you, Carl. Thank you for having me. It's always good to reconnect with you. And just listening to your your preamble there, we go back those like 20-something years when I was at ABC Sports and you were the head of Cat Sports, your own company. So lots of things transpired through the years, but great to be with you today. Well, those were great times and great memories, and we did a lot of fun things together and kind of broke some molds along the way. So that was, uh, that was a, a golden time for sure. Listen, over the course of your entire career, you've worked with and for a who's who in the broadcast and cable television world. And we all want to know who the best boss was that you ever had. Wow. All right. That's that's a tricky question. I know. And I have been blessed with some really amazing bosses over the years. And I have also been on the receiving end of some bosses that exhibited some bad behavior over the years. So I candidly, I don't have one person that I could say, this has been my best boss ever. But I have been over the course of, you know, really since I was 16, had a variety of bosses that I was able to glean from them some amazing attributes, best practices, best behavior, and then learn, you know, this is perhaps the way that I will never, ever want to act and and is not really a productive way to get things done. We all have both sides of that coin, and you're quite politic in the way you defined it, so good (laughs) for you. Not naming names. So if we're going to go back to when you were 16, right, everybody in this audience needs to know you were an Olympic speed skater. And so I'm going to guess you had, obviously, a coach and multiple coaches as you sort of rose the ladder, if you will, right, and got onto the Olympic ice. Give us a little bit of a sense 
of that and how maybe those athletic lessons influenced your athletic career as well as your business career? The first name that comes to mind is actually a coach for the Northbrook speed skating team. And he was the father of a couple skaters. His name was Edric Torres. He was a volunteer coach. I was 12 years old. Speed skating was new to me. And he hammered home. When you fall, you get back up and finish the race, right? It was like so fundamental. And that advice has stayed with me for the rest of my life because whether it was falling on the ice or falling and, and messing up a job or just something not turning out well, you know, you get yourself up and you finish, right? And that perseverance, that determination, that was for me, that was cultivated over the years and it was planted by Edric Torres. I also had the luxury of being coached by Diane Holum. She was an Olympic champion herself. She coached Eric Hyden to his five gold medals. She was the first female coach of a national team that coached both male and female skaters. And she was incredibly organized. She was hardworking. She was tough. She set the bar really high and she never asked anybody to do something that she herself wouldn't do. And so back to my athletic days, those two coaches kind of created the foundation that kind of really like I carried through the years and did experience bits and pieces of it in other bosses that I have. You know, you transition from an athlete from having a coach to then you're you're working and now you have bosses, but at the time the coach is really your boss. And then in my media career, you know, I, I worked for Dennis Swanson. You know, he headed, he was the president of ABC Sports. I had a stint with Bob Iger, who went on to become obviously a very well-known and very successful CEO and chairman of the Walt Disney Company. I worked for Geraldine Laybourne and, you know, she created Nickelodeon and then she created Oxygen Media and she was the first female boss I had outside of Diane Holum being a coach of mine. And then I also worked for Gary Stevenson. I worked for Michael Bear, and I worked for Larry Scott. So I have had like the smorgasbord of mentors, coaches, and bosses. You have. And <laughs> the, the, it's amazing to me, Lydia, those of us who had the good fortune to be coached by really outstanding coaches. And that probably is actually more of a boss than a workplace boss, right? I mean, mm -hmm. in, in the workplace, you, you're tasked with getting the job done and you get the job done and you go to weekly staff meetings or you poke your head in or whatever. In an athletic environment, you are coached every day, hours per day by an individual or group of individuals. And that, that experience just cannot help but have very strong, deep, wide influences in your character, in your approach to every day, and then translating into the business world. And I've interviewed several former athletes, Olympians for the podcast, and, and you all essentially say the same thing. Those early days really lay the foundation for successes later on. 
Jerry Laybourne's super interesting to me. I had the good fortune to meet her once, and I remember distinctly when you joined Oxygen, and that was shortly after the startup, the launch, if I'm if I'm yeah. right. Pre-launch, yeah. So Jerry's kind of on point as the the leadership executive, but in my little bit of research here, what role, if any, other than supporting with her name and probably some capital, did Oprah play? Well, that's interesting. Geraldine Laybourne and I got to know each other when she was still working for ABC Disney, and I was as well. And we were both on the Lifetime Television Board of Directors together. And so I got to experience Geraldine as a colleague and a superstar sort of media, you know, boss. And and when she left ABC Disney to create Oxygen Media, she was kind enough to invite me to join her. And so, I mean, I was truly honored that she was putting together this amazing cast of investors and building a team to help create the Oxygen Media that she envisioned. And so Oprah Winfrey was one of the investors and partners that Geraldine brought on board. And Oprah, along with Tom Warner and Marcy Carsey and Karen Mandebach and Paul Allen, they were active, hands-on investors and board members, and they provided capital and also some business guidance uh, along the way. And I stepped into Oxygen Media as the president of Oxygen Sports. It was actually the first national network that was providing an opportunity for women's sports to have a national show. And believe it or not, it was something that was very much of interest to Oprah. She realized that women's sports wasn't getting a lot of exposure, that female athletes were obviously not even in the sandbox, you know, of participation with male athletes and men's sports. And so Oprah had a handful of meetings in which Oprah was involved. She is, as you know, laser sharp when she's in, she's all in. And she was genuinely curious about the women's sports landscape and provided a lot of support and guidance. And, you know, obviously she was still doing her own show and she had her productions and things like that. And so Oxygen was just one of many, many things she was working on. But I did have the good fortune of meeting her and learning a little bit from her and seeing how she works. And, you know, she's a superstar, right? Right. Right. Well, Geraldine is as well, not not as well known, but I'm going to say this. Obviously, she's brilliant because she tapped you. (laughs) <laughs> that was more than an invitation, I'm guessing. So good for you all. And you literally, together, all of you launched that platform. It's still alive and well today, owned by the Comcast NBC Universal Group. Is that right? Yeah. So that was a startup. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get to a couple of other startup experiences. I'm going to bypass Cablevision and MSG, although icons in the space Certainly not startup land, but tell us the story of how you got tapped to come in and literally launch the Pac-12 network. Oh, I lobbied for that job. I had a girl. <laughs> I, I did. I was living in New York City. I was a principal in a boutique media advisory company with a couple colleagues of mine. And I read 
in the trades that Larry Scott, the commissioner of the Pac-12 conference, announced that the Pac-12 would have their own media company. And it was coming off of a 12-year, $3 billion deal he had negotiated with ESPN and Fox. And in addition to that new deal, the Pac-12 would move forward with their own networks. I read that and I wanted to participate. And I positioned myself as a consultant who could come in having had the startup experience at Oxygen and having worked at MSG Networks and worked in an entity that had hundreds of sports events per year across multiple sports. I felt like I had a really good background to help Pac-12. And at the time, Gary Stevenson was the head of Pac-12 Enterprises, and he was responsible for the networks and for sponsorship sales and integration and everything. And I reached out to Gary. I had a relationship with him from going way back to when I was at ABC Sports and he was at the PGA Tour. I also knew Larry from my ABC Sports days and he was at the ATP Tour and I lobbied. I said, you know, I can help you guys do it. And here's how. And I started to, I I flew out to the West Coast and I started noodling on a tablecloth, like here's what's needed. And in my head, I was thinking a two-year, maybe a three-year plan to like ramp up. And then they told me that the networks needed to launch in less than a year. And I was like, okay, (laughs) that's a different project. So in my head, I thought, sure, I could consult from the East Coast and fly West Coast and And then ultimately, you know, they offered me the position to be the president of Pac-12 Networks and help them build the team, manage the lead up to the launch, and then manage the networks after after we launched. Well, I remember sitting in your office shortly after you took the gig in, you know, it was downtown San Francisco, and we were just sort of chatting there, and he just looked across the, the desk at me and said, you know, 12 schools, I don't know. 20 plus verticalized sports teams slash programs per school, uh, X number, Y number of events, Z number of broadcast. I don't know. It was something like 2,500 or 3,000 in a given year, separate streams that you had to figure out how to produce and distribute a monumental task. So, you know, that's a, that's a big matrix. Yeah. What were a, a few of the things that were obvious that you had to do, needed to do, as opposed to those things that maybe you wanted to do? Well, that's an interesting question because I, I would just want to say all of the above, you know, right? <laughs> so instantly, you know, here I was, somebody who was no stranger to startup, somebody who had a significant amount of experience doing a variety of things. And the task that we had was just a monster project that needed to be chunked down into what is actually production, what is building, what is operations, and then getting really ready to go to commercial operations for a network respectful of the various agreements that Gary Stevenson or Larry Scott had put in place before I came on board. And so to candidly say I was in my stretch zone, um, you know, is, is probably the most accurate. And so the first thing I did was I focused on building the team. 
right? I knew exactly what I was capable of doing. I knew what we needed to get done. And I needed to assemble a team of people, talented executives who were versatile, who could play well together, and who could accomplish what we needed to accomplish in half the amount of time that that it typically would take. And, and so I did that. And you know, Leon Schweier came on board um, to oversee production. Art Marquez came on board to oversee distribution. And there were about 10 people who were instrumental in the success of Pac-12 Networks. And so I positioned myself as being a project manager. Right. And I learned from some of the best in the business. Geraldine Laybourne is like the velvet glove, right? She listens she gleans from what she learns, you know, and what she doesn't understand. She's very quick to say, I don't understand that. Can you explain it? So she taught me, make sure you understand everything before you start putting an action plan in place. Dennis Swanson was an amazing manager and he was a Marine, right? And he ran ABC Sports like we were all Marines, right? And, and you're like, <laughs> you're only as strong as your weakest person, you know, and he would like hammer that home. And so it was like a little bit of the Marine came and I was organized that way. And, and Gary Stevenson, you know, I was reporting into Gary and Gary is also super organized and a taskmaster. And Gary was holding everybody accountable. And, and so it really was a team effort. It was the hardest job. I had ever had, and it also was the most rewarding job I ever had because we had to hire so many people so quickly. And the people that we did hire, they were typically really doing two or three jobs. And, right. and so we were giving an enormous amount of responsibility to people who were relatively young in their career, you know, like right out of university. They were doing things that typically would take five years, you know, to do at another company. But I learned right away who was capable of doing things and who wasn't. And it was, it was a blast. It was, it was a blast. And, and also it was, you know, a once in a lifetime opportunity. Right. And in an environment like that, where there is no, it's like solve the problem, right? There is no Houston. We have a problem. You just got to solve the problem. Uh, and, and when you're in that crucible, the talent so quickly rises to the top, right? And, and you just, whether it's via instinct or observation, or it doesn't really matter. You get the talent, you get the right talent on the right assignment and you go. And you're going at Mach 10, by the way. So the Pac-12 network still today, more widely distributed. I know distribution on the various MSOs, cable platforms around the country was a bit of a challenge for you. I'm not exactly sure when streaming came in, or maybe it hasn't yet, but I think it has. So blend those two for us. Mm -hmm. So Pac-12 Networks launched as a linear network system, and the distribution of those networks were predicated on negotiating carriage deals with providers like Comcast, like Charter, like Altice, right? Yep. And 
each of those systems represent a certain number of people and very, very difficult business in those days as an independent company, meaning not having a corporate media company with leverage behind us, right? ESPN Disney, tremendous leverage, the number of networks they have, the number of events they have, the audience they have, they have a lot of leverage and they're paid dearly for their networks. Pac-12 has and had at the time a lot of rich live content, football games, swim meets, basketball games across more than 30 sports, but not having leverage in the marketplace made distribution very difficult. You know, the cord cutting, right? Right. Some people don't need to bundle, you know, uh, the package and have a cable provider. Other people are very comfortable with the a la carte. And so Pac-12 Networks now has a mix of the digital streams Mm -hmm. and the linear networks. I don't know what their numbers are right now, but it's a really good time to be an owner or a licensor of live sports content because there are multiple ways that content can get to sports fans, to consumers. Right. So that's a really interesting sort of pivot, if you will, to to what you're doing now. So you run hard for six years, you get it up and running, you get to the 20 million mark, short of your goal, nonetheless, a very successful startup. And those that followed you have continued to do it recognizing that, to your point, consumer behavior is quite different than it was five years ago, let alone 10. Mm-hmm. And the OTT, over-the-top television networks and the streaming that that bypasses via internet and bandwidth, bypasses those, the Altices and the Comcasts and the Coxes of the world. It's got to be a hybrid model, and that hybrid model is is the way forward. It seems like, particularly for a an entity that doesn't have, as you point out, the leverage of an ABC, Disney, or a ESPN, or or even you know Comcast, NBC. Yeah, yeah. You know, if we were sitting at a bar, Carl, it would be one of those conversations where you know my answer is I feel strongly both ways. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and sort of like, and that's where the consumer is for sports today, right? Exactly right. I feel strongly both ways, and the bottom line is I just want to watch. Right. Which is a great segue. That's it. And and so, you know, thank you for for teeing up Sports Bubble and the Watch Sports app. And, you know, obviously I'm one of those people who it's like the entrepreneurial spirit is alive and well. You know, it's a blessing and a curse. Right. I continuously try to solve problems and then figure out ways to do it and often end up in a world of startups. And, and I'm comfortable in that space. And so when I left Pac-12 Networks, I was not even close to thinking about retirement. I was really thinking about what's next. And I had enjoyed this 30 plus year career going from broadcast media to cable to RSN, you know, and then digital enters. And I'm just kind of riding the whole thing. And here I was you know, a sports fan. And I was watching the NBA finals and I wanted to switch from my smart TV to my iPad. And 
you know, I'm probably in the one percentile of people in the world who understand media rights and distribution and connection and things like that. And here I am trying to watch the NBA finals because, you know, the Warriors and I was, you know, fan. And I'm just trying to switch to the iPad. And I did what every consumer currently does. You know, I went to the search engine. Then I, you know, called through all of the different information. And, and then I finally got the app that then automatically then I had to authenticate. And, you know, like eight minutes passed by. And I know as a businesswoman that unless you're like, me and you're going to persevere and you really want to watch that game on your iPad, you've lost most of the audience that you could have had. And and so I started to like iterate in my head, like, you know, this is a really big problem, not for just sports fans, but for businesses, right? They're losing consumers who would otherwise watch sports. And so I created Sports Bubble and the name came from me putting a virtual bubble around the the sports viewing ecosystem. And I was went into deep research and development mode, meeting with leagues, meeting with tech companies, troubleshooting through what would work. And after two years, we came up with the Watch Sports app. And the Watch Sports app is a streaming guide that has connect to watch services. So all that information and all of the processes that I had to go through to connect to the Warriors game on my iPad are built into the app and it levels the playing field for live events. It's just as easy to connect to the World Cup Speed Skating Championships as it is an NFL game. Because as a user of the Watch Sports app, People just need to know what are they interested in watching, and we do everything else. And the Watch Sports app will be released probably in December of this year. It's very close. We're working on all the partnerships now, and as you can imagine, that's a a pretty complicated task because there are a lot of entities involved in the media rights for streaming live sports. Well, you certainly like to live in the matrix. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah, right. So let's just walk through it. You get the idea because you can't find what you want to watch and you persevere and it takes you eight minutes to actually get it. Was there a subscription required? Oh, no, I am a traditional, you know, I'm one of those sports consumers or just everyday consumers where I watch sports, but I also like movies and and I like video on demand. And so I still have a cable provider and I also subscribe to a lot of services back then three years ago. Comcast Xfinity was my provider. So easy to find it on TV. Switching to the iPad, more complicated because I needed to authenticate. It's improved a lot just in the last three years, but the core issue still exists. And we experienced it this past summer with the Olympic Games when NBC touted that they had 7,000 hours of programming to share with us. And then as soon as the game started, all of us who watched the Olympics were on the hunt and peck through the channels and Peacock and everywhere trying to figure out how do you actually connect to the event you really want to watch? And we couldn't figure it out. So the it's a big problem. And my goal was to make it super simple for everyone. Got it. So I'll, for my perspective, and, and hopefully I'm close to right, dumb it down a little bit. So... The Disney Plus app, 
sits on my smart TV. Mm-hmm. It sits in my Apple TV iconography. It sits on my smartphone. And it also sits on my iPad. Now, I've got a connected account. I'm a subscriber to Disney+. Plus, So any one of those devices, I can tap and watch, right? Mm-hmm. So is that how you view the ecosystem of the Watch Sports app to be a similar kind of thing? So I, it sits on my TV because I'm the same as you. I like on demand. And, and, and so I have Cox as my provider. Do you have to cut a deal with Cox to get the Watch Sports app in their ecosystem? Or can I just surf it off my smart TV? Well, here's the beautiful thing about the Watch Sports app is it's a transactional app. Think of us more as a kayak or a Yelp, right? It's like, if you want to watch sports, the Watch Sports app can connect you to the event you want to watch in 10 seconds or less. We have mastered that. And we are not streaming the event through the Watch Sports platform. We're connecting you to the platform that you are already a subscriber to, or you can choose to subscribe to, to stream that event. And so it keeps the ecosystem intact. We're never going to be licensing sports events to make them convenient. We're respecting the model that is currently in place. And so if you are a subscriber to, you know, Xfinity or ESPN Plus, will and they offer that event, will connect you right to their right to their platform. Makes perfect sense to me. I get it now. So let's say I'm on your app. I'm I'm on the app, and I want to watch something that's that I'm not a subscriber to. Right? It's not mm-hmm. through Cox. It's not through Apple TV. It's not through Disney Plus. It's like it exists somewhere else. Does the Watch Sports app allow quick authentication because they have my credit card in the background and they can be the transaction between the app and the programming provider I want to access? I would say we're just about there, but to keep it really simple, we offer the menu of all the watch options and you select where you want to go. And the partners who are streaming are offering our watch sports users a free trial, a free view, just to make sure that they get connected. So Fubo TV is a great example, right? Right. If it's available on Fubo TV and you don't have Fubo TV, you get a seven-day free trial and go ahead and watch that event. If you do have Fubo TV, you get authenticated through that. Got it. And we'll have almost every single provider, you know, available and all of the OTT services available. I love that freemium model. It makes it so easy because you, you know, it's like, okay, you get to test drive the car before you buy it, right? Mm-hmm. That that also makes perfect sense to me. So when you launch, and you said maybe in December, so this episode will air sometime in November. So it's going to be close, right? Where do where and how do people find the Watch Sports app when it's time? Are you going to be in the in the App Store? It will, will be available in the App Store. It will also be available at watchsports.app, so web, and we'll quickly expand. You know, we'll we'll quickly expand and be an app on connected TVs and everywhere, but the 
The first blush right out of the box is App Store and download the app onto your device or go to watchsports.app and you can watch any way you want. It's super fun. We've been testing it for six months now in beta mode and it truly is connecting people to events in 10 seconds or less. And, you know, it features pro sports, college sports, Olympic sports, high school sports, and esports. Nice. It does the, is the app free to download? Free app. It's just, you open it up, you can search it by sport, event, title, team, or league. Um, and you can scroll, you can swipe. Every event that is streamable stays live in the app listing live for 24 hours. And as soon as the event is off the air, no longer available, it disappears. So we only we only feature live sports events or first run events. That are actually happening as a user is on the app. Yes. Yes. So right now on a Saturday afternoon, because college football and college soccer is, you know, happening along with all the pro sports and Olympic sports on a Saturday afternoon, we in our listing, we show a three hour window. There's more than 100 events happening simultaneously in one three hour window. Right. Right. Unless you know that event is on, you would not think that there are actually more than 100 events happening at that time. And that's the fun part of the app is you can just scroll down and it's this menu where you can jump back and forth and say, oh, this school is playing soccer. Oh, so is this school. And you just go toggle back and forth. So we've gotten great feedback. I'm super excited about it. It started out truly as a passion play, looking for a solution personally, you know, and I've converted it obviously into a business over the last three years. God, I love that story. And as I promised the audience up front, it's a fascinatingly simple way to watch live sports. Thanks, Carl. It's so cool. All right. Well, you've been gracious with your time. So we're going to go now to the three regular bits I do with every guest. So the first one is your favorite mistake. So everybody knows this. Cheryl Crow is one of my faves. She wrote this great song called My Favorite Mistake. So there you go. So this is the one where, you know, you messed up big time, capital B-I-G, right? In the workplace. So what was it? And what did you learn from it? Oh, gosh, Carl, that's like, there could be three podcasts, but uh, <laughs> I'll be very, very specific with one, which is accepting a job without really getting clarity on what the title was, what the reporting structure was, what my responsibilities were, and the compensation, right? And so it was one of those freeform situations. And I was a production assistant. And I, in my production assistant role, I did a variety of things, including being the on-air analyst during the 1988 Winter Olympics paired with Keith Jackson. And at the time, I was still a production assistant for ABC Sports, right? So that is sort of like my, like my favorite mistake is on the good side, I went from being a PA to on-air talent. On the bad side, I was technically a production assistant. And, and so that's my favorite mistake. And you got to hang out with Keith Jackson. Whoa, Nelly. You got to have Keith calling short track speed skating. It, oh, it really that is awesome. was, was beautiful. That is awesome. Uh, so the second bit is I'm a huge fan of female singers, songwriters, artists, band. So the question is, 
the single concert, your favorite live concert, where a female artist or or female-led band or band led by a female singer was the headliner? 1991 Rolling Stones tour in Chicago. Tina Turner was the warm-up act and she stole the show. She stole the show. She rocked the place. And she was so amazing that when the Rolling Stones came out, like they, they, as much as, you know, like they're the Rolling Stones, right? Like they were the undercard. Like she rocked it. So that was my favorite. I saw her again in 19, I think it was like 1997. Well, maybe that was like late eighties, but I saw her again at Radio City Music Hall and she, again, she rocked it. So like Tina Turner. That is brilliant. I have seen her twice live and I completely echo what you just described. <laughs> she she literally brings the house down. She's so good. That's a great one. And she was wearing these heels, right? I just got to say, she was wearing these heels that were like about four or five inches. And she jumped from this like six foot speaker onto the stage with those heels on. And I think I was like, you know, first I was in shock, but she was like singing and rocking it. And she had so much passion. It was like, Nothing, nothing has topped that. And by the way, she was a legitimate athlete. You just described it. I mean, that lady has chops across the board. Okay, so the last one, particularly in leadership roles, words matter. You're leading a bunch of people. You've had a couple of startup situations where you've led people. and, And words matter. It's what you say, what you don't say. So your favorite word and why? Passion. Because my experience is it's one of those words that people understand and it has a deep meaning and it connotes a feeling. And and so I have looked for passion in people who are my colleagues or people who are working for me and with me. And I have also advised other people who come to me and ask for advice, whether it's my own children or people who are, you know, looking for advice, follow your passion, find your passion. And and if you know, if you can feel your passion, that becomes my experiences. It becomes a North star for, for everything else. Well, a true B this episode has demonstrated that in spades just by your answers and your energy and your your vision and focus all of those things are hugely key Lydia you, you've been so awesome with your time I know you're super busy getting ready for a massive launch of the watch sports app we want to wish you the best of luck we're going to be dialed in to how this thing rolls out I can't thank you enough for being a part of the best boss ever podcast series Well, thank you, Carl. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you. I'm looking forward to the next time we're together. Appreciate your plug. You you bet. Thanks now. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Google, Pandora, and many others. Please visit our website, at thebestbossever.com, where you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Until next week, remember, 
words matter.